There's a saying in the tech industry, growth solves all problems. I actually very strongly believe that's true. Meaning you can have highly dysfunctional companies that have a magical product market fit and that dysfunction will get them actually pretty far. One thing we don't talk enough about is the fact that if your leaders don't like each other and don't get along, everything's going to be shitty inside your company. To be honest, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with someone where they were like, oh, I, I fired that person too fast. Exactly. Like I should have slowed down. Maybe I seek the imposter syndrome. Actually, I was <laughs> just going to ask you, how the hell do you reconcile Bob chewing at your leg the Legos, the imposter syndrome with like, I'm taking jobs that I don't know anything about. Your risk appetite is so high. Like, like no one does this. That seems almost masochistic and I love it. Hey everyone, welcome back to the HR Heretics podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors. We're heretics in this industry because there's a culture of silence around important business topics, especially with people. But on the show, we tell the truth and expect the same from our guests. Today, we're excited to bring you a conversation with Molly Graham. Molly Graham is a Silicon Valley legend she was at Google and then early Facebook and then the ninth employee at Quip before they sold for $750 million. Molly blew our minds and I can't wait for you guys to listen to it. It was phenomenal. I, I had never seen someone so raw with some of the kind of the most taboo topics when it comes to founders, CEOs, Nolan, the depression, the isolation, the imposter syndrome, and literally unpacking that. It was so good that I was talking to a founder this morning and I gave Molly's advice for how to evaluate execs to him and said, you need to listen to the show when it comes out tomorrow. Totally. I uh, emailed her right after. Literally, like we stopped recording and I emailed her to hang out. We got a lot of new stuff from Molly, too. She told a story about Shamath that had me absolutely dying laughing. I also think... Molly gave us more insight into the way that she thinks and the way that she comes up with these amazing metaphors like yeah. <laughs> giving up your yeah. Legos and the monster that's eating at your leg and where those stories actually came from. Yeah, I, I, I actually love that because everyone reads, writes a ton of articles. There's metaphors. There's all these things we've been hearing in business for a long time. Like, I had no idea where the Legos story came from. And it was just, it was really cool to see that, oh, that's a real person. That's actually a real story that was a pretty hard thing to work through. And it was just so cool to hear her talk about that. Totally. Molly is world-class. She's on the Mount Rushmore, in my opinion, of operators in the Valley. And I can't wait for everyone to listen to the show. Stay tuned, everyone, for after this episode where Nolan and I banter a bit on the infamous open to work tab on LinkedIn, where Nolan was credited by Insider late last week for his opinions on this. I have some opinions. Some of our opinions differ. Some don't. Can't wait to talk about it. Looking forward to it. Molly Graham, welcome to HR Heretics. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Nice to see you guys. Thanks for being on. So you have maybe two of the most like viral first round articles of all time giving away your Legos and why you need to make friends with the monster chewing at your leg. Can you give some insights into our audience as to like what drove these articles and what made you write them? I appreciate you mentioning the monster article because most people only talk about the Legos article and they're, they're both like near and dear to my heart. The Legos article was an accident because, um, it's, it's a metaphor I came up with when I was working at Google. That was sort of my first job in tech a long time ago in 2007. Google was 15,000 people at the time, but um, my department was 25 people when I joined. I joined in communications, and um, it grew from 25 people to 125 people in nine months. And so it was my first experience with with what you would consider crazy scale, you know, sort of um, a lot of, a lot of Xing. And, um, I just noticed a pattern when people had to give things away, uh, where it created a lot of insecurity. You know, you're somebody new joins, you're worried they're going to be better than you. You're worried 
you and it causes people to kind of like hold on tightly to what they know instead of embracing the uncertainty and the opportunity that comes with people taking over what you've been doing so you can like go do other things. Um, and then I left Google and went to Facebook, uh, again, an accident, but, um, I sort of vividly remember early on, I was in the communications department at Facebook for like two months and I, I had to take over the blog from someone else. We didn't even have a Facebook page at that time because pages didn't exist. It was a blog and I, I was supposed to take it over. And the woman I was taking it over from was having a lot of trouble giving it away because she had, um, she had built it from nothing. So it's, you know, and anybody that's been inside a scaling startup knows what that feels like. And I actually talked to her about the Legos um, metaphor at the time where I was just like, look, this is, this is hard. This is what this feels like, but there's can be a lot of opportunity on the other side. If you, if you let go of things Um, and, and it helped during those Facebook years, I sort of like repeated that speech to people that worked for me, to myself, to friends. And then I did a speech about it. Uh, it was an accidental speech and I, um, but I got like a, a really positive response. Uh, the first round blog was still pretty new. So I forwarded it to Camille and Brett who, uh, ran it at the time and they were like, we loved it. And I don't think any of us understood what it would become, but I also think what it is, is that people don't talk about emotions at work all that much. Like they don't talk. We talk a lot about how to scale. We talk a lot about, um, how to manage. We talk a lot about how to lead, but we don't talk about how hard it is and how emotional it is and how scary it is. And the fact that, you know, every day you wake up and you're like, you know, everyone around me is better than me and who even gave me this job in the first place. And I really, I always say like, I think the Legos article just says like, don't worry, it's all going to be okay. And that's why people like it so much. Um, so I think all I did was really just like normalize the emotions with scaling. Um, and then the monster article is the same thing, maybe just a little deeper because the monster, I don't even know where he came from, but you can tell that my brain just naturally creates weird metaphors. I was raised on the Muppets. So I think that's why he's a monster. Um, I always think he's like animal or something like that, you know, but um, you know, it became my metaphor for all these emotions that you have uh, when you're going through these complex experiences, building a company um, and it helped me to externalize it. Um, and that's how I came up with Bob, my monster. He's just the external manifestation of all the emotions I, that I call the monster attacks. So like you're having a bad day and somebody's being a jerk and you want to write the rage email. Like I always say, that's Bob. That's my monster's name is Bob. I tell people they can name their monster, whatever they want. Um, but I, it helped me to externalize it. It helped me to like sort of manifest it in a picture. And then once that article came out, somebody actually told me it's a literal tool that psychologists use to help people manage anxiety. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> Turns awesome. out it's actually helpful. So yeah, you are like the, the beginning of the coining the imposter syndrome, right? Like yeah. wave. I, I do have a question about that because that was a while back. And I feel like I feel like it's common now, right? People lean into talking about imposter syndrome and Legos. Do you think the industry has shifted a lot with that? Because back when you published those, it was kind of taboo or more taboo, I would argue, than now. Yeah, I think probably it has shifted. I think for any number of reasons, we've gotten better at talking about work and um, and feelings. I The thing that really struck me when I was at Quip, um, and I still think this is true today, is that nobody it's better now, but nobody really talks about founder depression. Uh, nobody really talks about that experience of founding a company and how emotionally hard it is. And we, there was a couple of founder suicides around the time that I was thinking about the monster article. And, um, you know, I felt like we were not talking enough about the tornado of feelings that happen as you're building something. And particularly if you're really early, I think that has gotten better. There's a few people out there really that have embraced talking about depression and, you know, all of that. But I would guess I would say it's probably a topic you can't talk about enough because to catch somebody before they do something dramatic, like everybody needs to be talking about it. People need to normalize it and help people understand that just because they feel like everything's terrible and they're about to drive the car off a cliff, like actually that's that's normal. That's what founding a company feels like. But um, yeah. And also being an early employee at a company because hundred percent. So you, you were at Google in the tens of thousands, 15,000 Facebook around 500 quip at nine pre-product. 
Walk us through the differences of going from a scaled company and then Facebook is still, it was post product market fit, the company's scaling really fast to then pre-product. We haven't launched. You're the ninth employee. What's that like? Yeah. No, totally. Great point. So I, I would say they were all very different and I was unprepared for any of them. Google, I stumbled into, which sounds crazy, but, um, and you know, at a company that big, you, you identify more with the experience of your team than you do with the experience of the company. So for me, my experience at Google was defined by that scaling of the team, um, which was, you know, 25 to 125 employees. And then Facebook again, stumbled in there, 500 employees, uh, 80 million users when I joined and I left at 5,500 employees and a billion plus users. So it's wild five years, um, that everybody that was there remembers vividly. Um, and, and yeah, when I left Facebook, I was unprepared for what 500 employees felt like, just to be clear. Um, that was why, and particularly with that kind of product market fit, I mean, Facebook was an insane scaling journey that very few people get to go on. And I'm super grateful I got to experience it. But it was literally a different company every one to three months, which, you know, a lot of companies are not that way. Um, it's ju- it was just such rapid scale. Um, and then uh, Quip, like, I literally, like, thought that I had a picture in my head when I left Facebook and I, you know, took some time off and did a job search that was <laughs> very short, uh, ended up going to Quip. And, um, you know, I knew Brett and I knew one or two of the other people there. And, and I thought startups were just a lot of hard work. I thought that, I thought that's what zero to one was. I thought it was like, oh, like, I get it. I know how to work hard. Like, and I've been on an emotional roller coaster of scaling. And I think I was absolutely floored in the first six months by the emptiness of startups and the sort of feeling of loneliness and the feeling of like, every everything we do might not work and might not be that I think it was, I got run over by a truck. Like we launched and I knew exactly what launches felt like. Cause it, and with, you know, Brett's brand, like launching Quip was like, everybody wanted to write about us and everybody wanted to talk about us. And then we got to the other side of the launch and it was just like, nobody cared, you know? <laughs> and when I was hiring employees into Quip, I tested them on this because we hired a couple of people from Facebook and Google. And I was like, are you cool working for someplace that nobody cares about? You know, are you cool selling a brand that no one's ever heard of and people aren't going to want to take your call? And people assume that that it's them, but it turns out it's the brand they're working for. And so with Quip, like I, I was in a dark phase about the three months after the launch. And I really had just this feeling of like this car driving off a cliff or something. And I, and because I, me, I like thought it was all my fault or something. Cause I ran everything, go to market. And, um, and I went out to, uh, lunch with a friend of mine who later ended up working at Quip and, uh, he had worked in the zero to one space before, which I never had. And, and I was explaining to him how I was feeling, which was really hard. I hadn't wanted to talk to anybody about it. Cause I just thought it was like an expression of us like failing or something like that. And I said to him, yeah, I just feel like everything's a mess and like, you know, no, nothing's going anywhere and everything's failing and whatever. And he was like, yeah, welcome to startups. And I was like, and it was like, I think it's like what the Legos article does for people is, is that moment. I was like, oh, this is normal. I was like, oh, okay. Like, and it literally took the weight off my shoulders just because somebody told me, yeah, that's how everybody feels. Um, and I feel like that's, you know, again, just to go back to the Legos article, like the power is when somebody says, yeah, you're, spo- you're supposed to feel this way. And you're like, oh, okay. It gives you that permission to actually, this is actually normal. It's okay. Cause we've all gone through it. It is I, so different face- though. It's, it's so different though at that stage, Molly, like nine yeah. people. And it, what's interesting to me too, is like y- you were in comms. And then, you know, did a bunch of other stuff at, at Facebook and, and then you get to like running go to market for a pre-product company. You do a launch, Brett's brand, like, you know, get you guys all over social media. I actually remember that. I was an early quip tester. And then unfortunately I was like, ah, like I'm gonna go back to Google Docs. Like I think a lot of people did. You, you, you and other people do. <laughs> and then <laughs> you're but, you're what made me depressed, Nolan. It's your <laughs> fault. <laughs> but then he'll do you know, that. But then there's a gap, right? There's like a three, four year gap. And next thing I know, it's like Quip is selling to Salesforce for $750 million. And from my vantage point, it's like, wow, like overnight success. But what actually happened there? Like, how did you guys get that thing going? And how did you guys take on the monster that was Google Docs? Quip is a great story. Um, And uh, I think 
as you said, overnight success. So I think that it's important to say that everything that looks like overnight success spends a huge amount of time feeling like a giant fucking disaster. Um, and that the people that are inside of it feel like everything is terrible all the time. The story of Quip is, it could be told a bunch of different ways, but, um, I think the like salient thing to what you're, uh, talking about is actually the, the market they picked in the first place. Um, and there's a lot of context around why Quip ended up being sold for as much as it was. Um, but you know, Brett would tell you that you have to pick a really big problem. Like, and that's how strategic acquisitions happen. You have to pick a problem that's like so big that you're, you're fighting the big guys. Um, and a lot of people, you do see this. We see a lot of startups get started that are features, not products, let alone products that matter. When you spend time in the HR space, like a lot of what I spend time with founders on is like, yo, are you one of the big four? Because if you're not, your product's going to get cut. Like, but when but push comes to shove, and we're seeing that now with a lot of like the recruiting products that showed up in 2000, 2021 and 2020, they're all struggling now because budgets got cut. And it turns out all you all you buy is an ATS, an HRIS, an engagement product, and a performance product. And that's it. You know what I mean? If you're not one of those things, people are going to cut you. And this would be Brett's point, right? Like, what are the four or five major things that every IT manager buys? Like, one of them is productivity. Um, and we learned that in every single way. So, um, you know, but fighting against the big guys is hard, right? Because it turns out that Microsoft and Google have like a very, very specific selling motion, including they give, they give office away for free, right? In, and yeah, they bundle and, and, um, whenever somebody comes to me and is like, I'm going to launch a PowerPoint competitor, I'm like, let me tell you <laughs> what that looks like. Here's what's going to happen to your revenue. Like you can get to a certain point and then you will hit a wall because the big contracts, the big, con like the truly big ones, like it is hard to win because, you know, you, you aren't going to get office out. You aren't going to get um, Google out. And to some extent, in a lot of cases, we were fighting with a free product, right? Which is what Google is. Um, so I think lots of lessons learned from that, but in terms of the acquisition itself, there was a rumor going around that Microsoft had tried to buy Salesforce and then that acquisition had fallen apart there. Then, uh, LinkedIn was bought by Microsoft and it was rumored that Salesforce was trying to buy LinkedIn. So there was a lot of competitive dynamics going on. Um, and everyone was mad at each other. Uh, and you know, I think Mark Benioff was really frustrated with Microsoft. And so there was some alliances that he was trying to build. And one of them was with us. So, you know, a friend once said to me, um, a friend who's had his company acquired three times, he said, all strategic acquisitions start with partnerships. And that was true for us. Um, and I often tell founders that where I'm like, hey, if you want to make an acquisition part of your possible long-term plan, you have to start by thinking, who, who should I build a relationship with? And who, who do I have like a distribution? Who am I complimentary to? Like where I have an asset that they want and they have distribution that I want or whatever. Um, and that was true of us in Salesforce. Like we had already started those strategic conversations and then they got even more strategic because there was like a little alliance being formed between Salesforce and other people. And then of course, at some point, you know, one of the people on the phone said to Brett, I think like, hey, like, why don't we just buy you guys for like, I think he said $500 million. And Brett was like, well, that's a very extremely high opening offer. It ended up being a great thing for Salesforce, for sure, because they got Brett. And, and I think it also let them, you know, end up buying Slack and kind of actually building a, into the productivity space, which it's hard to do. Um, I don't think Brett ever sets out building companies to sell them. That's not who he is. And I think this was just a moment of like uh, a clear opportunity. Um, and it was, you know, obviously incredibly good for the team. And I think he was really excited to give people some kind of return for, for their time and their investment. Awesome story. We'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey everybody, your co-host Nolan here. High performance and great culture should never be at odds. They're better together. With Lattice People Management Platform, companies efficiently run people programs that create enviable cultures where employees want to do their best work. Serving thousands of customers of all sizes globally, Lattice helps everyone work better together. Learn why companies from Slack to the LA Dodgers choose Lattice. 
Visit lattice.com slash HR heretics today. That's lattice, L A T T I C E.com. Have you ever had a negative experience hiring an executive? I certainly did at Carta and DoorDash, and that's why I started Continuum, the modern AI powered executive search firm. Continuum connects executives and senior operators to venture backed tech companies for fractional and full time roles. You could post any executive level role to Continuum's marketplace and search through our database of world-class experience leaders. Continuum will intelligently surface your opportunity to relevant operators. They'll express interest and show up in your inbox. It's like magic. There's no platform fee or hidden cost. You only pay the person you hire, and you can cancel at any time. If you're thinking about hiring an exec in the middle of a search right now or don't know how to solve a problem, I get it. Scaling is hard. Companies like Athletic Greens, Weights and Biases, Masari, and more than 100 other tech companies have turned to Continuum for help solving their people ops, go-to-market, engineering, and finance challenges. So check out Continuum in the description below, ping me on LinkedIn if you have any questions, or head to joincontinuum.com. I wanted to ask about something, Mala, you mentioned a few times about the concept of accidents, right? This happened by accident, this happened by accident. A lot of listeners, including myself when I started out, it's got to be like this. Here's the path. And especially founders as well, right? Here's my path for the company. I'm going to exit in X years and shit happens and they become depressed or, you know, it's really hard. I'd love to, for you to share your concept on accidents and kind of going with the flow. And if it's changed since you started. No, it hasn't changed at all. If anything, it's gotten much, much deeper and clearer in the sense of like how I manage my career, which even saying that sentence, I'm like, I don't manage my career. I just stumble into things. I wrote an article about this recently because I think a lot of the advice you're given in college is terrible. Uh, really all throughout your childhood, you know, people ask you the question, what do you want to do when you grow up? And even that question is a terrible question because it means you're supposed to know. I like, still don't I, know. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. No, 100%. Yeah. Neither do I. You know, I really am an advocate for not knowing. I majored in African history. Do you know what I mean? Like I spent a huge amount of time in sub-Saharan Africa in college. And then I like led wilderness trips all over the world for a couple a year after college. And so I don't think anybody thought I would end up at Google or Facebook or any of these places. I'm a believer in embracing not knowing and then using your 20s as an exploratory journey of like learning. What I always talk about is, is filling out four lists, what you love doing, what you're great at, what you hate doing and what you're bad at. And I'm a big advocate that those are four very different lists. They have overlap. There is Venn diagrams. Um, and then, you know, designing your career around the intersection between what you love doing and what you're great at. And, um, and that requires experimentation. It requires trying things and being wrong. So like, you know, going into communications at, uh, Google happened because I was uh, in a publishing job in New York. Um, and then going from Google to Facebook happened because I followed people, which is definitely one of, you know, following smart people is one of my other big pieces of advice. So I followed my boss, Elliot Schrage from Google to Facebook. And then I was in corporate communications for two months and somebody came to me, Chris Cox uh, came to me and said, Hey, I want you to come help me out in HR. And I was like, sure. And then he was like, I think Mark just asked me to go run products. So will you work for this other woman, Lori Guller, who's still the head of people at Facebook. So she and I started in the people department on the same day, basically, and, and grew up together there because she was a marketer and I was a communicator. That was an accident. And it was a lesson in like, I like, ended up running the performance management system at Facebook because nobody was organizing the project. And I just said to Lori, Hey, can I, can I organize this? I'll work with the HRVPs, but can I like organize the system? And she was like, yeah, sure. Nobody else is doing it. So then I ended up running that for two years. I think a lot of it was just like following my own intuition and like finding gray spaces, finding things that weren't done. Obviously at Facebook, there was a lot of opportunity same with leaving. Well, there was a second chapter at Facebook where somebody came to me and said, you know, he had seen me rewrite the values with Mark and him at Facebook. And he came to me and said, hey, do you want to come build a phone? Well, actually, what he said to me is, you're useless. You shouldn't be working in HR. Like, why don't you go do something actually useful with your time? Why don't you come work for Jeez, me? Wow. Um, what a pitch. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you know Chamath, that is basically oh, his pitch every, okay. every time. Yeah. Um, and he said to me, and he said, why don't you come work for me? And I was like, doing what? And he said, well, come work for Javi, who's now the CEO of Facebook and, run, uh, you know, help 
on international growth or come, I don't know, there were two other things. And then he was like, or, you know, I'm going to build a phone. And uh, why don't you come help me do that? And, you know, again, natural intuition or whatever, I was like, I don't want to do these other things, or I don't think I'd be good at them, you know, because one of my best friends worked for Javi. And I was like, she's like, really good. And I'm not good at anything. So I was like, what is this phone thing? And I, you know, I was like, why are we doing that? We don't like, what the actual F? And then, you know, I spent some time with him. And I talked to Lori, and I talked to a variety of other people, all of whom were like, don't do that. My dad, Cheryl, everyone was like, Ah, it's kind of a stupid project. Like it'll be, I think Cheryl literally said it'll be dead in two months, but don't worry. You'll always have a job. And I, yeah, so I ended up, I ended up doing that and it was three years uh, on the mobile team at Facebook helping really, it ended up being helping figure out the future for Facebook of mobile and how we wanted to strategically position ourselves. I really do feel like the only reason I went to Quip was because I worked for Brett at Facebook. These are all happy accidents. And I think the only thing consistent about me is I just really don't like doing what I've done before. I get bored really easily. It's a huge flaw. Everyone always offers you the job you just had. I left Quip and I don't know, I think maybe Dylan at Figma was like looking, someone was looking for a COO that I'm sure is now a massive company. I think it might've been Dylan. I don't remember. And they were like, why don't you go work for this person? Hey, do you want to come be a a COO of a series A SaaS startup, which is what I literally just did. And I was like, definitely not. And the only job that you know, came my way at that time that piqued my interest was the Chan Zuckerberg initiative, because I was like, this is weird. Like, I don't know how to do this. And, you know, it's a philanthropy, it's a tech company, and they're working on criminal justice reform and biomedical science. Like, how do I do this? And so maybe I seek the imposter syndrome, Kelly. Yeah, (laughs) actually, I was just going to ask you, how the hell do you reconcile Bob chewing at your leg you know, the Legos, the imposter syndrome with like, I'm taking jobs that I don't know anything about. Yeah, your risk appetite. That, that seems almost masochistic and I love it. But how do you <laughs> reconcile that? Yeah, your risk appetite is so high. Like, like, no one does this. I mean, do you run marathons? Do you drink whiskey? How do you do this? So like, first of all, there's like how you get the opportunity in the first place. And, you know, a lot of that is luck. Like, it's being good at the job that you were good at before and then staying in touch with people that liked you. That is, that is how opportunity builds over time. You know, um, I always say, uh, life is a barter economy and that is actually how you build a really strong network. And what I mean by that is you do things for people and then in two years or whatever, they owe you a favor. And I was saying, not that you'd expect it obviously, but no, and I, but I think that like what you want with a powerful network is a lot of people that would do anything for you. And that means to, to earn that, you have to do a lot of things for other people. And I feel like somebody was asking me the other day, like there's this concept these days of like a personal board of directors. And they were asking me like how I built mine. And one of the things I said to him is like, you know, to be honest, like I have a, an amazing, I'm so grateful for all the people that are willing to like spend time with me when I'm going through hard decisions or whatever. I have, I consider them friends, not a board of directors, but, um, but I actually think the thing that I've done that I'm proudest of is I have a very broad network of people in the world that would do anything for me because I've done a lot of stuff for them. And, and I don't think of it as like they owe me. I just think of it as like we do stuff for each other. And that, that is how you build a network. With jobs, it's the same thing. Like you want people to want to work with you again. So like, first of all, don't be a dick when you're at your company. Second of all, like stay in touch with people. Like every time I leave a company, I make a list of people that I loved working with and I just stay in touch with them. And some of that is just like, we end up doing things for each other over time. And some of it is I get, these days I get other people jobs, which I like doing. I think to your question, Kelly, about like (laughs) risk tolerance, I definitely have a really high risk tolerance. I don't really think of it that way because I think of it as getting bored easily. I enjoy learning curves that are so steep that I'm scared I'm going to fall off them. And when I have, like I've talked about in the past, like I have this concept of legs of a stool um, for work happiness. And I think everybody's legs are different. For me, my legs are a mission that I, that matters to me, that I want to work on. Uh, people that I love and, and want to see every day and want to learn from. And then the third is learning. And when I say learning, what I mean is a curve so steep, you're going to fall off. I look for that. And that always means that I'm doing something that I've never done before. I think that 
nobody talks enough about the emotions that go with this. And to do the stuff I've done, I've definitely gotten really good and methodical about um, managing my own emotions, but it doesn't mean I don't have them. Like I was sitting at CZI, which is like what, 10 or 12 years into my career being like, who the actual fuck hired me to do this job? Like this is a $70 billion philanthropy and I can't do math. Yeah. Maybe I like, was everybody cool with that? You know? And like, I was sitting at this table with, um, you know, CZI was really good for me because the people that I was working with were so impressive. I mean, it was like, biomedical scientist that's won every award except for a Nobel Prize, you know, David Pluff, who ran Obama's campaign, Jim Shelton, who was in the Obama White House and has run, you know, a a bunch of really impressive organizations. And, you know, I'm the idiot that's sitting there that's like, pausing the conversation while they're all talking, being like, sorry, can I just ask a question? Like, do we have goals? I talk a lot about being a professional moron. And that's really what I am. Like these (laughs) days, like, what's that? I, 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 I just tapped a soapbox for a second. I could not agree more with this. I've been, you know, doing this godforsaken HR role for about 24 years. And the thing I always say to people is the, the relationships and the actual, like, authentic relationships. I don't think you can fake that. Like, I don't think you can say, I don't want to help people. Or I don't want to keep in touch with people. But I'm going to do it because they're going to help me later. Like, that just doesn't work. I just, I, I would go so far as to say is your mindset around that is probably one of the biggest reasons you're getting support for these jobs and you can't fucking do math. Like I do think there's a psychological goodwill around that because people like working with you. And I think that is that is something that a, a lot of people do not spend enough time thinking about. And that that compounds over time, I think. Um, and it's amazing what can come back to you or not. I'm also a big fan of analogies and it's like that Forrest Gump, right? The leaf, half of it's luck and half of it's just... How, how you're moving forward. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. It's great. Yeah, for sure. And I would say like, I would, I actually say half of it's luck and half of it's saying yes when people ask you to do crazy things, which that's the risk thing, you know? And I will also just say like, risk partially comes from being secure, like being able to say yes to crazy things. Like, you know, I've had financial security and I've had people supporting me, like even Cheryl saying like, I think that project will be dead in two months, but you'll still have a job. Like that's a kind of security. So it's it can be harder for people to take risks. It's one of the reasons I hate student loans is because I actually think it causes some of the more talented people in the world to make very different decisions coming out of college because they have to have income, right, to cover student loans. And I think it's, you know, it causes a huge drag on society and innovation because people are so uh, married to that fucking check they have to write every month, so... Anyway, that's my soapbox. Molly, it's the your take on relationships is awesome. One of my bigger regrets is leaving uh, companies early in my career. I told myself I didn't want to be the person that was like showing up to company happy hours and like being like the senior that just graduated and is now like always around. And what I've learned throughout my career is like, it's not, it doesn't have to be that way. Like you can do it with nuance and you could stay in touch and care about people and just check in to see how they're doing. And it really seems like you've mastered that skill. And I think what I've learned from you so far is like, you're amazing with relationships and metaphors. And you're also just in the arena and you're just, you're, you're in the arena, just like in there making shit happen. And like, I think a lot of people are going to learn from you and learn from this episode. On that note, you've worked with amazing teams uh, at Google, uh, at Facebook, at Quip. These are all incredible companies. And you were there at, uh, you know, especially for Facebook and Quip at inflection points. I'm curious about like what it's like when teams are working and also when teams aren't working and how you dissect that and how you go about getting teams to work well together. Yeah. Well, I'm going to answer this more from my last set of, you know, five or 10 years working with startups because I spend a lot of time with founders bringing me problems and just saying, here's what's going on inside my company. And I will just say that like, there's a saying in the, in the tech industry, growth solves all problems. I actually very strongly believe that's true. Meaning you can have highly dysfunctional companies that have a magical product market fit and that dysfunction uh, will get them actually pretty far. Like it never ceases to amaze me um, the level of dysfunction underneath some of the, you know, 
10 and $50 billion more, I would say $10 billion companies, it hits you at some point, the dysfunction. But the first thing that matters is your business. And if your business is sucking, uh, the dysfunction shows up more clearly. Um, one of, one of my proudest things is I've built a couple really happy, high performing teams in dysfunctional businesses. And I think that's hard to do. It's actually one of the hardest tasks because when all your goals are red or when, you know, the number isn't what your investors want it to be, like to have a team that's happy and loves working together is it's an extra effort. You know, when a founder comes to me and sort of says, here's what's happening and these people hate each other. Usually they come to me and say, we're not hitting our goals. And I think it's the team's fault. Um, a lot of times what I, I spend time first on the business because the business matters a ton. Um, and if the business isn't going well, it, re it reverberates down into the team and vice versa. Um, the second thing I spend time on is leadership. I have been thinking about this a lot recently uh, because we spend a lot of time talking about executive recruiting and we spend a lot of time talking about how you hone and find the right person for your marketing role or your sales role or your engineering role or your product role. But one thing we don't talk enough about is uh, the fact that if your leaders don't like each other and don't get along, everything's going to be shitty inside your company. Like if your engineering leader and your product leader don't enjoy working together, it is going to be very, very hard to effectively ship code um, because those two people have a bunch of friction and tension um, and it's going to show up in meetings. It's going to show up in process and it reverberates down into their team. Suddenly the product managers don't like the engineers or whatever. Um, same on the marketing and sales side. So, you know, I, I, like one of my hopes and one of the things I've been talking to more, more and more founders about uh, recently as they hire their first executive teams or their second executive teams is not just hiring individuals, but hiring a team and really thinking through that team formation, both like uh, what roles you actually need and then also the kind of person. I always, with jobs, I always say there's the what and then there's the how, right? So there's like, what are you hiring for? What kind of experience? What kind of background? What kind of skills? What kind of seniority? And then there's the how. How do you want them to do their work? A lot of times we don't focus on that how and, and it, it leads to leadership teams that hate each other and then it's just like a mess underneath them and then you're not hitting your goals and you're like, why am I not hitting your goals? And it's like, because your sales leader and your marketing leader hate each other. Especially at early stage companies when it's usually just about the revenue and the code and the product. I mean, it's true everywhere, but absolutely. Um, I think it, it shows up so fast in early stage companies because, you know, hopefully you're placing very few leadership bets, like three or whatever, you know, if you're early stage. And if those folks don't love working together, like it just makes everything harder and, and stuff's already really hard. You know, uh, there's nothing harder than fighting for product market fit. So how do you think about assessing for that as part of, I think executive recruiting is a mess. It's so hard to get right. Tony at DoorDash used to say the Michael Jordan of exec recruiting gets it right two out of three times. And so how do you assess for those skills, specifically the relational skills between cross-functional execs? Uh, Tony and I violently agree. My number is 50%, which is, I think that I, I actually think I'm a really good recruiter. I learned from uh, a woman named Jamie Talata Green, who's like one of the best recruiters in go-to-market in the world. And she really taught me, uh, she did our first executive hires at, at Quip, and um, and I I'm I think I'm pretty good at it at this point. My average is fifty percent. You know what I mean? Like it's and I talk about that a lot to people because I think it also means you have to be as good at letting people go at parting ways when it's not right and doing that efficiently um, as you are at hiring. Um, and it means hiring is hard, and lots of people aren't good at that. And it also means firing is hard, and you got to get good at that. So. Um, the answer to your question in terms of how is I think everybody has to find their own way of assessing the how. Um, there was this really amazing uh, recruiter who I think was maybe the first recruiter at Facebook um, named Andy Barton. And he taught me a psychological interview by doing one on me where he, he really, I would call it now, I would call it a motivation interview. But a lot of what I do is just try to understand people deeply. Who are you? Where do you come from? You know, what what made you make the decisions you've made? What have you learned? Like, how do you talk about yourself and your teams? And really, why are you why are we even having this conversation? Like, what what brought you to my front door? What brought you to this job? And like, a lot of it for me is 
what are you looking for? And does that match what I need inside the company? And then, you know, in that process, I think of really deeply assessing people's motivation and um, all that, I think you can find out who people are and whether they fit. You know, one of one of the high performing teams that I built, we had this predominantly very low ego executive team. And I remember looking for um, one role. I can't remember what it was. I think it was marketing. And I interviewed someone that I was like, this person is very talented, like l- more talented than anybody else I was talking to and just came with a backpack full of ego. I, I could feel it coming through the Zoom. You know what I mean? And I was like, yeah, this is not going to work. Like, you're so great. And I just could not hire you because you would destroy my team. And I, it's not worth it to me because I don't want to make the whole company dysfunctional in order to have this level of talent, you know, so. Yeah. We've had some hot takes recently on the tenure for early stage executives. It's 18 months. It's a year. It's two years. What do you think about that? I tell people 18 months, like when I'm, when I'm building, helping CEOs build leadership teams, like a lot of what I talk about is like, they're like five years from now. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, cute. 18 months. I had a conversation once, I think it was with John Collison uh, at Stripe. And I, and, and I was just, I just casually said, you know, look, there's so much churn in early stage executives teams. It's one of the most painful phases. And, and really most leaders don't last more than, um, than two years. And it's, I would say it's the exception, not the rule, right? The exception is the leader that lasts longer than two years um, and deserves it because sometimes CEOs are just wusses and won't fire the person. But um, John said to me, uh, you know, that really calmed down for us after a thousand employees. And, I, and then I reflected on it and realized that was true for Facebook too. Like Facebook had a huge amount of churn in the first, um, the first thousand employees. And then they built a leadership team, Cheryl and Mark, that stayed forever. Like that, w- it was the same people for 10 years, I think. Um, and that, so anyway, I think there's just a huge amount of churn and somewhat rightly so if you're growing quickly um, in the sense that like, it's just hard for someone to be as good at sort of the like 5 million to 20 million to 50 million as they are at a hundred million plus in terms of revenue. And then, you know, similarly, like, if you're not growing, sometimes you're, you've got people hitting the wrong nail with the wrong tool. You know, they're using a pony instead of a hammer or whatever. So totally. And it makes sense. I mean, you said Facebook was a different company every one to three months, like totally different company. I think that's something I've seen is that people used to feel bad about that. And I think it's, it's not taboo anymore. Yeah. I'm here for a certain phase. It's a tour of duty and I'm moving on. And that used to be not, not a great, not a great look even like five, six years ago. Yeah, totally. I think it's, uh, it's complicated because, but the best execs that I work with, that I've hired, that I've worked for, whatever, hold on to power very loosely and are just like, listen, I'm here while I'm the right person to be here. I'm here to build the biggest company I can build. And, um, at some point, if it's not me, like that runs this thing, like, great, I'll find the right person or I'll build the right team under me or whatever, you know? That is, it's a very rare for an exec to say that, but when they do, that's when it's magical. You had mentioned your hit rate being 50%. And I, I tend to agree, like mine's in that neighborhood as well. Um, I have found that most CEOs and, and most managers in general move too slow to move people out. Why do you think that is? And like, what can they do to move faster? Oh man, I just did a talk this week to my, I run a little community for operators. And I, I do a talk, uh, every other Thursday and we were just talking about, uh, managing up, down and sideways. I have this great picture of a very disappointed turtle that tells people to fire people. Um, the reason is because basically no matter how senior of a manager you are and no matter how many people you fired, you spend a significant chunk of time thinking that it's you thinking that it's your fault that the person's not performing and that it, and, and I feel like that, causes you to be like, if only I could just tweak these things, then this person would finally perform. And and the truth is, the more senior you get, the longer you've done this, the thing that you start to know is that as soon as you have that feeling that something's wrong, you need to start to do the work to figure out what's wrong. Um, and I and and one of the things I was talking to that group of people about yesterday is just like, I um, 
I really believe that hiring has two parts. The first is finding the right person or what I call making educated bets on people. So you're making an educated bet on someone. The other side of the bet is how are you going to know if it was right? Which means you need to have that answer before the person starts. In two months, and I'm, I use a two-month time horizon, how would you know if this person is working out as well as you thought they would, better or worse? And I, you need to scope all three. Um, in your mind, all you need to do is sit down and just visualize it. Okay, what would I feel like in 60 days if this person was working out as well as I think they're going to? I made a bet that they're the person I think they are. How, and, and that can be numbers, but not all, there's not, you know, not every number moves in two months. So like, this is the hard thing about sales leaders. Um, but there's a lot of tangible things like, oh, I would feel like the team was, they had a handle on the team and they were firing some people, moving some people out and figuring out what leadership they needed to bring in. Maybe they've brought some people in already. I would feel like I didn't have to worry about X, Y, and Z. I would feel like I would see X PQ happening with my leadership team where they had built relationships with the following people. You can list, this is what it feels, you can visualize and then, and then write out, and then you can give it to them. You can say, hey, like, here's what I want to see in 60 days. You don't have to give them the whole list, but you can give them some set of lists. And that's part of setting expectations for someone when they start. This is what success looks like. This is what I, what matters to me. And then ask them to bring you a plan. Hey, what are you going to do in the first 30, 60, 90 days, whatever. But like, I think often we stop at hiring. We're like victory. Like I found the perfect person all done. And um, then somehow we're surprised when half the people struggle at two months or three months or whatever. And so it takes us six or nine months to get rid of someone. And by that time you've lost a lot of momentum. You've, they've, they fucked up the team. They fucked up the business. I think planning for the 50% matters. And to your point, figuring that out early, right? Because if someone's nine months in and they're kind of struggling, it, it, replacing that person is very stressful. And sometimes it can put the business back at least 12 months. And so you want to hang on to that person, like try, try like hell to make it work. Yeah. And I think, I think there's value in in second guessing yourself, you know, but to be honest, I've don't think I've ever had a conversation with someone where they were like, Oh, I, I fired that person too fast. Exactly. Like I should have slowed down. Like I've just never had that right. conversation. It's always right. like, man, should have done that nine yeah. months ago. Yeah. I think that that is partially just because it takes us a long time to, to sort out what's really going wrong. And, and to some extent to stop blaming ourselves or trying to fix ourselves as managers. Molly, how do you counsel founders, leaders, HR leaders to fire executives? What's the textbook way that should work? I don't think it's that different for executives and for employees, because at the end of the day, if you're a good manager, the person, the person often fires themselves. You know, the person is like, yeah, this isn't working. I'm not happy or I'm not performing because you've been having conversations with them for two months or a month or whatever that like, hey, here's what I'm seeing and this is what's frustrating me and this isn't working. And, you know, here's another example. And, you know, what management is at the end of the day is like laying a foundation for a conversation with someone around like what you expect of them and then having a conversation over time about how they're doing relative to those expectations. And if you are not having that conversation, then you end up having either A, a very long process of firing somebody, B, surprising them like they think they're doing well and you think they're not, um, or C, it just takes for fucking ever, you know, because yeah. then you... Um, totally. So, I, you know, I think for me, uh, I, A, put a lot of emphasis on that conversation and making sure that it's obviously, A, expect like that expectations are clear and then that I'm having a conversation with someone about those expectations. But I think then with, with truly senior leaders, unless there's weird intentions underneath, a lot of times it can be a very mutual decision. Um, someone sometimes has to be the one, you know, sometimes you have to be the one that says, look, this just isn't working out. And I don't think we're going to fix it in the time that I need, you know, like maybe we could fix it if we had six months, but we don't. Um, and sometimes you have to be the one that says, so I want to part ways. Um, but if you've done your job well as a manager, usually they're like, okay, I understand. And I might be mad and you might have to pay me some money, but I get it because we've been having this conversation for a while. Molly, that's so good. I love your framework of setting the expectation for yourself before you hire somebody in two months from now, how will I, how will I measure if I'm feeling if it, this is good or not good or if it's working or not? Um, I love that. I'm going to start making everybody do that before they make hires. I do it at the beginning where you're scoping the role and then at the end once you've hired the person. And I love the quality of that aspect of that. Totally. Like what, is, what does it feel like? What's going on? 
what's the vibe of this person after two months? That is just as important to your point about the what and the how. Totally. We, it's, it's such a good point, Kelly. Like at Google, we tried to do all this stuff to remove bias. And I, I think one of the things we swung so hard to kind of just be robots. And I actually think like, especially with executive level hiring, like you have to lean into feelings. Yeah. If they don't win the hearts and minds of the people that are executing, you're, you're screwed. I have one more quick one for you, Molly. What is the biggest misconception are you seeing founders having around HR leader roles, chief people officers? What are you telling them? Interesting. Can I rephrase the question? It's interesting. The, can, I'll just tell you what I want to what I the question I want to answer, which is like, what am I seeing founders want and ask for that maybe isn't as common in the HR space? Every founder I talk to right now wants an operational head of people, meaning they want a head of people that thinks about the business and understands the business and understands that at the end of the day, they're not responsible for employee happiness. They're responsible for one of the largest budget budget items inside the company. Um, they're responsible for unit economics because at the end of the day, like most companies, most software companies, the two biggest expenses are people and servers. Um, you know, obviously if you have like a retail business, there's other costs, but if people are the biggest expense inside of a company, how do you as a people leader think about running that, the process of filling those seats well um, and being economically and fiscally responsible to the business and the business that needs to be built? Um, I think sometimes we uh, have focused so much on happiness that we've forgotten that everybody's going to be unhappy if there's no business. And, uh, I see founders pretty desperate for partnership that understands that at the end of the day, this is a business. And if the business doesn't work, which there's a lot of these days, um, no one has a job. So I think that like, for me, if I were to like gift something to the, the sort of people leaders of the world, it would be an understanding that everything has to be business first um, that doesn't mean you, people can't be happy. I actually think people like winning. Number one, growth solves all problems, right? Like people like winning, maybe like being part of a company that's winning that makes people happy first and foremost. Um, and so the business is there for everyone to unite around and to try to solve together. And a lot of other stuff is, is frankly a distraction. Um, and I think that conversation is, you know, I guess I've always sort of felt that way, but it's really important these days because, you know, somebody said to me this week that there's, they did math in PitchBook and there's 1200 companies that haven't raised, uh, and might go out of business next year if they don't raise. Um, and if that's true, then there's going to be a lot of acquisitions for sure, but there's also going to be a lot of folks that can't get acquired and aren't going to be able to raise. And, it just means that the business of how people show up and how they help build companies and how they help companies achieve their goals is is more important. Um, but it is, at the end of the day, a part of a business. The goal is to make the business thrive. Could not agree more. And the era of luxurious beliefs is over. Yeah. I mean, I would just say the era of excess is over. But yeah, for sure. Turns out, uni turns out unit economics matter. Who knew? We're back. We're going to go through our rapid fire questions. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually really curious about this one for you because you've hired so many great people. Who's your best hire and why? Best hire? Come on. One I have person. I so many. One, no, I can't do it. Humble brag. No. Oh, there's so many. One person. No, no. It's not me. It's them. I'm, I like have gotten to work with so many incredible people in my life. And I, it would be like... I don't even know, picking a favorite kid. They're all my favorite. I love them. Okay. So then you, it is true. You have worked with amazing people on your team. Um, tell us about the best interview question to get signal on them. I, I think I have an interview style that works for me and I don't necessarily recommend it to other people. The thing I recommend to other people is find your interview style and the one that works for you. What I start with is tell me your story. And I, I really love stopping at the word story. And, and then people start in really fun places. You know, I remember when I interviewed the guy who was the head of comp at Facebook for a long time, uh, he said, well, I was born in Romania and, and then told me his whole life story. And, and, you know, he had a refugee back anyway, it was, it was awesome. And I, I felt like I knew him by the end. And, you know, I, I love where people start when you say, tell me your story. And then I love where they go. And it helps me 
but that's because I'm me and it's because I listen in a certain way and I probe in a certain way and I ask questions in a certain way. I love that. Molly Graham, this was amazing. Thank you so much for your time. So good. Thank you, Molly. Yeah. Thanks, you guys. So fun. So Nolan, how did Business Insider get to you on the open to work Yeah, on LinkedIn? I'm curious how that, since I was surprised yeah. to see it. So interestingly enough, CNBC actually reported it first and I have a relationship with the reporter. And so she pings me probably like once every three months to get my feedback on topics as it relates to people and what's happening in the job market. But I want to take a minute to to run through the facts of what actually happened, because I think you see what's happening on LinkedIn. And then there's this whole, like from where I stand, what actually happened. So just facts. I had an interview with CNBC. I told the reporter that the open to work feature on LinkedIn is the worst feature ever pushed to production for any social media site. I said that because I think it hurts job seekers. And the reason why it hurts job seekers is because many, and I mean literally dozens of hiring managers and founders have told me that they feel like people who put that on their LinkedIn are desperate. The reporter didn't get my quote like exactly right. So like, I'm not gonna like get into that, but anyways, they ran the story article goes live and many HR pros and recruiters vehemently disagreed with me. And I think they had like two points of view. Um, One is from the recruiting standpoint, well, Nolan, it's easier to find people that are open to work if they put the banner on there and like LinkedIn prioritizes those people. And what I would say to that is, is that's objectively true, but recruiters are not decision makers in the hiring process. And so I'm literally giving a perspective from the hiring manager and founder seat. The second piece of feedback is, I would summarize it as Nolan is punching down. And so the feedback was like, it's very harmful that you're putting this out there. It's misogynistic. It's outdated. It's super biased. And my response to that is, I want people to know what hiring decision makers are thinking. And I was very direct with what I said, but the intent of what I said was not to be biased. It's actually to call out the bias so people see it and they're aware of it. And now Mm -hmm. people can make a decision. And that's what I think is actually good about what happened. Mm -hmm. So anyways, Insider did pick it up. They have 11 million followers on LinkedIn. And that's when it like went hyper viral and I became the villain on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, But anyway, that's that's the reason why I get it out there so people can see it. Well, the thing, so I, I started seeing a bunch of pings and this and that. It's like, what is going on? What is he doing? What is he doing now? And I I thought about this a lot the the past few days and talked to some folks. I mean, the good news is you you had good intent. You have good intent, right? You're trying to help. You're trying to call something out that you've seen so others can learn from it and we can kind of fix it or they can make a decision. That 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 was your intent, not to punch down and say, This is what this is what happens, but this is what could happen. You should be aware of it. And make a decision. I think if the feature hurts more than one person, it's probably no longer needed. And when it first came out, like, let's go back. When it came out in 2020 during the pandemic, it was necessary. Like, a ton of people had lost their jobs, like, overnight. And that actually was expeditious for recruiters. We're now three years beyond that. And so how how the open-to-work banner, uh, how a hiring manager views that banner is now different three years in. The the other thing I'll say is like on fixing bias, I was probably one of the first people at Google to go through the um the bi- the the bias training for interviewers. Yep. I did this in like 2012. The reality is I don't think we've made much progress. And it's not for lack of attempt. It's because human bias is encoded into our DNAs. And fixing that is going to take decades. And I am all about doing that work. There are many people that are doing that work. We should keep going. But if people are getting hurt today, not saying something is worse than knowing it and keeping it to myself. Yeah. Look, I applaud you for saying it. I think there's a lot of folks out there in all different parts, right, of this of this side. And they're bringing their own experiences to the table when they're reading it or agreeing or disagreeing. So I'm always going to, I'm always going to like kind of go at you with the, 
it's not a one size fits all, dude. It it never, it never, never is. Now I will tell you, I disagree on it's three years later, like being in HR and seeing right, Informatica just laid off 10% of their workforce like two days ago totally. or whatever it was. So that is not over. And the altruism and the community like help that I've seen on LinkedIn with everyone trying to help each other, it is still going on, is is like nothing I've ever seen. Like I haven't seen that on LinkedIn in my, how long is LinkedIn? But I, like I've been doing this 23 years and the yeah. level of like, wildfire community help and support for people that have been losing their jobs, especially over the last 12, 18 months. Yeah. It's very big. So I think honestly, Nolan, you're you're getting a lot of blowback on that because your comments were seen as insensitive yep. to those that got screwed over by all this nonsense. Totally. And the audience can disagree with me. I think if you would have posted that shit three years ago or four years ago, you wouldn't have heard anything. Uh, you think so? I, I think that people would not be as heightened to it because the market was much different. And I, I do. I, I well, think the that, banner only came out during the pandemic. Well, so, I, just, I know, but yeah. I'm just saying, what if it was there five years ago? I don't think you would have gotten a lot of blowback because people literally yeah. are not in the same it's position. It's the moment. You're saying it's the moment. and I think I, the environment has a lot to do with it. And I think, and I've helped a shit ton of people on LinkedIn that lost their jobs. And totally. I think people are speaking up for other people. Now, I will tell you, and people might disagree with me, as an executive, I wouldn't put that on there. Why not? I Well, so first of all, I don't really think about it, right? So you mentioned this, and I agree with it. Networking, working your networks, making connections, talking to people. Cold outbounding hiring managers. I just... That's what all I would think of. I probably wouldn't even think of changing my. Yep. I, I didn't even know the feature freaking existed, to be honest. Like until recently. Like so, there there's that piece of it. But that being said, like the industry people are in, the job function people are in, the levels of these of these roles, and like whether you're full time or temporary or consultant. Like these are all factors that like come on. We're all reasonable. This can't be a black or white issue. It does for hiring managers, especially for early stage startups, they are biased. What I am saying is is people should be aware of that and that there is a conversation happening that they don't know about. And now I'm telling you and, and look, in parallel, I think there's a lot of things as a, like I got a lot of feedback on like, well, Nolan, you should be helping people. That's my intent. You're trying and I actually yeah. totally agree that school does not prepare people to go find a job. Like the number one question I get from college kids is how should I get a job? How do I get my foot in the right. door? And so I actually have talked a lot about this historically, but I think like it's a problem with our educational system is we don't teach people applicable skills that they're going to use I to agree. make a living. The other thing I just noticed from this conversation is there is a monoculture of thought in HR. And I... I came in from a different angle on this and I pissed that monoculture off. And that's one of the reasons why we started this podcast is yeah, because we yeah. wanted to we wanted to have more of a discussion and to to illuminate that there's other points of view to get things done. And as I told people on LinkedIn, look, I'm optimizing for speed here. I could have chosen my words better. It could have been quoted better. But I'm optimizing for speed and letting people know and trying yeah. to help them. Yeah. But look, the, the bottom line for me is it's a data point. Like it, your opinion on this, like whether you disagree or agree, any reasonable person would agree that shit's out there. So you should be you should be aware of it. Take it or leave it. But exactly that that it, it is it is real in some respect. And that that's my biggest takeaway is it should be in, in the consideration set then. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny, like you said, recruiters see this, but the hire managers make the decision. Again, I could get chastised for this, but if I, if I like pulled every recruiter at Pendo, I bet you a lot of them would be like, I don't even really mention that to the hiring manager. But like, the hiring manager's looking on LinkedIn, Kelly. Like I'm every saying, hiring manager though, looks on LinkedIn. I've never had a, I've, I've never in the three years this damn feature's been out, 
I've never had a hiring manager say, oh, the circle's green. Like, forget it. I, And I've never even noticed myself when I've been hiring people. I literally like, yeah. it, again, it's like whether you're looking or not, I want that person because they're the best person for this job. Yeah. And that, so, is, that is the way the world <laughs> should work all the time. My comments were to state the way okay. the way the world works is not like that all right. the time. I'm just telling you in my career boots on the ground scaling these damn companies, I've never had a hiring manager say the circle's green. Forget it. Okay. I'm gonna introduce you to some of the people that I know. I wanna yeah, I wanna <laughs> I mean like the point again, I don't care the point is not to not to shun, disagree, or agree. The point is to understand yeah. everything that's out there. That's, that's right, exactly. how you yep. educate people and that's what you're trying to do. I, I appreciate the discussion. I appreciate you still befriending me. Um, yeah, and I want to hear from the audience too. Like, same. am I full of shit? Yep. And I do appreciate everyone's discussion and comments. I appreciate you. Thank you. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen, and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.